so much for coming out this evening. I want to thank our faithful canine. <laughs> right. The other one's behind the sales counter up front. So this is a two-dog night. Thank you, video audience, for joining us this evening. And we're delighted to welcome Deborah Goodrich-Joyce and her beautiful book, Brief Road. Now, I want to say, I don't often say this because I'm not enamored of all book covers, but I think this one is really gorgeous. Thank you, Barbara. I, I had a little say in this. Um, you did? Yeah. I, we had looked at a couple of ideas. We were looking at street signs a la Sunset Boulevard. If you remember the beginning of that movie, the, mm -hmm. uh, the credits were a street sign, and it, it didn't quite work. And we had this bird of paradise in mind. So it's interesting. When you put a flower in the middle of a book cover, it looks very literary fiction. The whole thing conveys something completely different. But off to the side, and you can also see that it's stabbing my name. And the other thing I would point out is the spider. If you're going to use a spider on a book cover, it has to be kind of the silhouette of a spider. Not right. a really... Well, the idea is there will be people who don't touch your book if it's a really disgusting, hairy, gross spider. So I don't know. So I no think... tarantulas on book covers? <laughs> no. no. I think we got the right tone here. It's very dramatic. Yeah. I mean, I really like the color. We have something here called Mexican poinciana, you know, which I love. Do any of you have those in your yards? I mean, they're just, they're gorgeous, aren't they? And I love the orange. It is. Right, yeah, these are very abundant in Palm Beach, where I wrote the book and where the book is set. Right. So there's a very interesting backstory to why you wrote this book, and perhaps you would like to um, share that with us before we talk about the book, because I think it will add meaning to the conversation. I think so. So uh, Reef Road is fiction, but it's based on a true crime. And in March of 2020, you all know where you were. For me, it was March 13th. It was my granddaughter's birthday, and we were at that moment of what is happening here? And well, we all know what happened. I was grounded in Palm Beach, Florida, not a bad place to be. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, this is the moment as the world is getting quiet that I will investigate the real murder of my real mother's best friend, which happened on December the 10th, 1948 in Pittsburgh. It was a Friday night and my mom was, they, the girls were 12, my mother and her friend. And my mother was supposed to be at her friend's house that night. She was the girl, Carol was her name. She was home alone. Uh, her parents were going bowling, and there are many aspects of the case, which I, I can, and I'm happy to talk about. And when her parents got home at 11.30 that night, they came into the house. The kitchen was empty where she'd been baking a cake, but there was a trail of blood to the dining room where she was sprawled on the floor having been stabbed 36 times. 36? 36. And I'm glad you asked that question, 36, because there was the weirdest disconnect when I started researching it. I don't know if any of you have ever, <laughs> I'm going to liken this to, have you ever pronounced a word a particular way in your mind and then suddenly you hear a newscaster say it and you think, I've been saying that wrong my mm -hmm. whole life. For me, it was debacle. And the first time I heard a newscaster say it, I thought, oh, my God, I have to retrain myself. Mm. My mother had always told me that her friend was stabbed 37 times. And it was so disconcerting when and, and I did all the research. I got the coroner's report. I mean, there are dozens of newspaper articles. I spoke to the police. They wouldn't confirm anything. Uh, it was 36. So it was just sort of a. 
it was it's sort of symbolic of an overarching i think the story i i understood from my mother who's still alive by the way mm. was even though she was an adult when she told me i think she was telling the story as she had understood it as a 12-year-old girl and my grandmother had not allowed her to read the newspapers or anything so in March of 2020 when I started the research it, it was a complete re-education on the crime mm. and what had actually happened. So family lore didn't necessarily track with reality? Well just so my mother talked a lot about the idea that it was an intruder who had come into the house from the outside. The story of the father, and this is in all the new newspapers, the father makes a big deal about having locked the front door, having locked the back door. They, these were row houses in Pittsburgh. It was a very working class neighborhood called Homewood Brushton. And when they came home and the back door was open, uh, I think my mother took the impression that someone had come into the house. So I think my mother always had this kind of exaggerated sense of vulnerability at home. So the home security alarm system was a very good thing for someone like my mother. Uh, later, the way we came to understand it, and there was a moment, I happened to know when the case was reopened in 2008 through a really weird series of twists, which involves Mary Elizabeth on Eora, which is a community that we both know in the Catskill Mountains and uh, a DA I know up there who actually got the case reopened. So in two, from 2008 and then when I did the research in 2020, I know that primary suspicion has fallen always on a brother. Uh, the brother in question was 19, and a lot of this I have fictionalized in the book, uh, so I won't go into too much detail. But it was a reshaping of the understanding, which in a weird way, I think, for my mom, it didn't lessen the trauma of what had happened to her very close friend, but it, it kind of uh, dissipated this idea that malevolent forces just fly in through the window. So not a stranger danger kind of a thing, in other words. Exactly that. Right. Yeah. So as a consequence, um, what did you want to explore when you wrote the book? I mean, you know, you could just write a thriller for fun, but Reef Road really isn't quite that book. So what, what was it that um, inspired you to tell this particular story? I like to call all my books identity thrillers, which is not a genre, but if you have any influence with the genre makers, I would like it to be a genre. I think an identity thriller is is the kind of thriller that's really digging into those puzzles of, of human identity and the secrets that people keep. So I'm always writing about that. I'm in, intrigued by, you know, what the front is and then what the back is of a human being. In this case, I really wanted to delve into generational trauma and mm -hmm. conferred trauma of another kind, which is a very real syndrome. If you think about people like Dominic Dunn, whose daughter was murdered, and he changed his life to go from film production to really becoming this preeminent chronicler of our most salacious murder trials for Vanity Fair. Or you think about um, Michelle McNamara, who wrote I'll Be Gone in the Dark, which was instrumental in solving the case of the Golden State Killer. Those are both really um, well-known examples of people who were very influenced by 
extreme acts of violence that happen to their loved ones, or in the case of McNamara, someone in her town. So I think it's a real thing. And I wanted to explore, you know, what what is the effect of a single act of violence? Like Dennis Lehane in, in Mystic River. I mean, he that's a different kind of act, but that's what I wanted to get at thematically. Well, you certainly do an excellent job in this book. Um, in order to tell the story, you have to select a viewpoint. So, you know, books can be told in first person, and therefore, you know, if the narrator is telling you the story, the only thing that the narrator can tell you is what the narrator experiences, right? And if you're not telling it in first person, then you can bring in a lot of other points of view, whatever it is. So how did you decide? This is a complicated story that involves generations, as you've said. How did you decide how to tell the story? Well, not only does it involve generations, there are really two narratives in Reef Road. There is the uh, story of the writer, which all of her chapters are called a writer's thoughts, and they're in first person, and it is, they're really like diary entries. She is... I don't want to use the word rambling because that would give you the wrong impression. <laughs> I don't think the book is rambling. But she goes down many flights of fancy and many research rabbit holes. She's a rather obsessive character, so I got to indulge that aspect of my own personality and my own brain. And I wanted very much for her point of view to be first person because I wanted the reader to really get into her headspace, which is is that particularly obsessive thing. There is an alternating point of view in the book, and those chapters are called The Wife, and they're written like a book within a book. They have their own separate chapter numbers that don't necessarily correspond to the actual chapters of the book, and that is the story of a younger woman, because the whole thing is set in Palm Beach, Florida, in the pandemic lockdown of 2020, which was hot and sweaty and buggy and confining and the younger woman's story, her name is Linda Alonzo, and I just love to say her name, and she's mm -hmm. married to a very handsome fellow from Argentina named Miguel Alonzo, mm -hmm. and they have two beautiful little children, Diego and Espy, whom they call Gogo, and, uh, well, Esperanza is called Espy, and about three weeks into the COVID lockdown, Miguel and the children disappear, and Linda calls the police, and they are tracked down. The car is found at Miami International Airport, and security footage reveals the husband and the two children in their face masks getting on a plane bound for Buenos Aires. And because of the pandemic lockdown, she cannot follow. So the book toggles back and forth between the first-person narrative of the writer and the third-person close narrative of the wife. And her story's more noir, and we can talk about noir and what that actually means. Um, so it was more fun than anything going back and forth uh, between the two women. It's an interesting structure. I was recalling, I was talking to Patrick about it. We did a conference in 1996 in which writers presented papers about authors they admired and all. And one of the writers talked about Robert Louis Stevenson. And he pointed out, and I've read Treasure Island, and I'd completely... How many of you have read Treasure Island? Okay. So you do you remember that, in point of fact, there is a first-person voice, and then it switches to a third-person voice? And the reason is that Stevenson ran into writer's block. He couldn't figure out how to tell the story, all of it, in first person. And so he took a leap 
to do it, you know, with a to go off into third person. And that what that was I mean, the novel's only really existed since the eighteenth century, since seventeen forty nine when Samuel Richardson wrote Pamela which is an epistolary novel because that solved a whole lot of problems about how to have voices, what kind of narrative structure because letters go sequentially, you know, the whole deal. So a novel was still evolving and still is in point of fact. But Stevenson really did an interesting thing there. And, you know, for a long time, the wisdom for crime fiction was that it was either first person or it was third person. But I find it interesting that now people can mix it up and readers go along with that. Well, I think particularly if you have different characters uh, that you're focusing on, you can do that more. I, I mean, the, the choice you're describing, and if it's the same, essentially, narrator, if it's the same voice, that is an interesting choice, and it's a bold choice. Well, it wasn't. I think that it was the young boy, I can't remember his name, he tells the story, and then in order to get the pirate's point of view and all, then he has to switch to, to them. But the point was the boy couldn't tell the whole story which is, you know, it was more than he could do all by himself in first person. Well, and that's one of the things that would distinguish a film, of course, from a novel, because the film, you you often have the omniscient camera that just sees right. through walls. And, and you were saying the wisdom in thrillers is, generally speaking, that you don't want to let the reader see something that the character whose point of view you're in can't see. And how do you play with that and how do you solve that is is an interesting question. Well, we'll come back to the whole deal about, you know, storytelling in visual form as opposed to written. But why did you select a writer? I mean, what's the writer's stake in this book? Why is she telling part of the story? Well, if the writer is a bit of a stand-in for me, and I, I hasten to add that I've told my mother that I've made the writer and her mother a lot less stable than we are in real life. <laughs> so, for and dramatic did your mother purposes. buy that? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, I wanted her to be a, a very cerebral character. Okay. I wanted her to be, I've used the word already, obsessive, but a character who is very driven to dig into this thing on which this event, this or this type of event, on which so many aspects of her own life and her own upbringing have really turned, that her, her mother has been altered by this. So mm -hmm. I think by making her a writer, and it, it added to that, I also wanted it to appear at the beginning of the book that the writer might be making up the story of the wife, that it, because it is a book within a book, mm -hmm. that it might be just her, her uh, novel unfolding. Uh, so I didn't want that to be clear for a long while. That's so I think that's yeah, why the writer... That's yeah, a really interesting discussion. So um, how is it you go about, you know, what what is your process in writing a book? Because obviously you've given this a lot of thought. Um, how did you elect to do it that way? So generally speaking, I start with a spark of an idea uh, and... You know, I have three published novels now and working on a fourth, and each idea has come through in a different way. And this one, as I said, was this real murder that I wanted to explore. Right. And as I was researching it, there was a thought of how utterly meta could I go? <laughs> could I actually have a nonfiction narrative and a fiction narrative combined in one book? 
And I wasn't really able to answer that question for myself. I do think the writers' sections are rather meta in that they're, if that's not a term that everyone uses, self-referential. There's a self-awareness on behalf of the writer. And I'm going to use an example, and I'm not comparing my book to this book in any way, but sort of aspirationally, the French lieutenant's woman is very meta. If you think about the, the two, you have the film and you, you know the contemporary and you have the period piece, and it is self-referential. So I wanted to play around with that. And so my process with this was research heavy at the beginning. And people always ask, are you a plotter or a pantser? Meaning, do you plot it all out or do you fly by the seat of your pants? And a radio interviewer asked me what I thought was a better set of terms for my process. He said, do you chart your books with a compass or a map? And that fits better with me. Hmm, that's I'm, an interesting I choice. know. Yeah, I really like it. I like that, too. And I wrote it down so I wouldn't forget. <laughs> I'm a compass girl. Okay. I, I, am, I am charting things out. So I write copious notes, and my notes take the form of what if. What if the writer does this? What if the wife does that? What if this? What if that? And so as I'm doing that, and I'm thinking about how it all plays out, I do a really weird, old-fashioned thing. I go on my computer and I print out month at a page, calendar pages, because my books are often nonlinear. And it is very hard to keep track of nonlinear storylines just from your timeline on your computer, even if you print it out. But if you have those month at a page, <laughs> this is so like analog, uh, pick a date, like October the 4th, 1982. You have the last time this, you see this water bottle before someone uses the water bottle to kill someone in this room. So you make a note on October the 4th, last time you see the water bottle. So as you're going along and you're jumping around in your story, you can just, it, it is very visually accessible, this little tool. And I've had another writer who's taken it up recently. That's going to be my, my free tip for everyone. Um, I don't know. For me, it just makes it easy to see. And then at some point, I start writing. And things do take a direction you know as as everyone says the characters start to tell you where you're going but you have a background as an as an actress and so you're familiar with storytelling that is visual does that affect your writing process I mean are you a visual writer I know that all sounds like an oxymoron but in point of fact it actually can work I'm a very visual writer and I think most people say they can envision my books as movies. I don't like writing screenplays, but I like writing novels that feel like screenplays. One of the things I like to write is real place. I am one of those readers who, uh, when I'm reading a book uh, and I recognize a place, I jump a little in my seat and think, I've been to that cafe. I know that place. I know that street. So I always chart it out, and, and I'm very precise about uh, finding out, you know, did this thing exist at that moment when I'm writing this place? And I think in writing real place, fiction in real place, it just, it lends uh, this tactile sense to the book where your book becomes really immersive for the reader, uh, I, I think. So that's sort of the visual aspect. And cinematically, I think my novels are structured like a film. They really do kind of break down into three acts. Mm -hmm. Right, which makes perfectly good sense. But I've recently been talking to 
screenwriters who've become authors or others who've tried to write screenplays. And the, the thing is that if you're a screenwriter, the set and the actors, you know, contribute to the story. So basically you're writing dialogue. You're giving them things to say, but you don't have to describe the room or the landscape. You don't have to describe what they look like. You don't have to describe their gestures, you know, if they're doing something. And if you're a novelist, I, I talked to a screenwriter last week, and he said the hard thing for him as a novelist was to remember that the reader couldn't see everything. And so he had to write it in, you know, which is not what he's accustomed to. Whereas authors who write novels have a terrible time writing screenplays, many of them, because they they can't cut out all that, you know. It's, it's You have to pare it down to basically just dialogue. And, um, it, I mean, they are very different ways of telling yeah. stories. Dialogue and cuts. You have to say things like fade to black or smash cut or all that stuff. I don't like writing screenplays. I edited screenplays in the 90s when I was at Merrimax, yeah. and I learned... I, Miramax, in a way, was my, you know, writing school. But because when you're in an editorial seat, you really are honing your ideas about what is working or what isn't working and why. You have to tell the writer why it, it doesn't work if it doesn't. But the writing of screenplays, I don't think, is my strong suit. Why not? I don't know. The, the writing of novels just is... I, I feel like I have more facility for it. I mean, I have written a screenplay. I've had books optioned where I wasn't the screenwriter. I don't know, maybe I should have been and they would have happened. I don't know. Uh, that's another question. I don't, I don't think it's my strength. Well, if you don't think it's your strength, you're not going to be successful at it, so that's a really good thing. Um, I find that interesting because that means that you prefer to color in the landscape and you prefer to flesh out the characters and all. You don't want to let somebody else actually do that. Maybe that means I'm controlling. I don't know. Well, I wasn't going to take it that far, <laughs> but I, I guess we could, I guess we could assume that. But I mean, I've, I've talked to, you know, number like Michael Connolly, for example, or James Salas. We published his book Drive that became the Ryan Gosling movie, for example. So I edited the book and then, you know, went to see the movie. Um, and it's not the same entirely. It's not the same thing. You know, Ryan Gosling is his own person, and so, you know, there's stuff that goes on with him that, um, I don't know, I had a mixed reaction to. It's like Bosch, you know, does, 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 what's his name? I can't even think of his name. Does he really feel like Bosch to you? I mean, everybody has to make that decision, but if you've read all the books, you know, then you have to decide whether the guy playing um, Bosch feels like Bosch, um, or or Maddie takes over the daughter who is actually almost non-existent in the books. You know, has a very small role, but she's really important in the in the you know. In other words, readers they think oftentimes feel like when a book is changed into a film that it's not faithful to the book. But I don't know that they allow for the fact that there are all these other influences going on. Well, if, first of all, it's an interpretation. Right. Um, and second of all, it is such a collaborative art. I think it's a miracle if a movie comes out. And and I worked in that industry for two decades as an actress as an, and as an editor. And I'm so in awe of a movie that I'm, I'm a very good audience member because yeah. I completely go into total uh, suspension of disbelief when I watch a movie. 
But if it works, I mean, you think the script has to be good, the direction has to be good, the actors have to be good, but then there has to be chemistry between the actors, and there has to be good editing, and there has to be a good soundtrack. And it's just, for all those things to come together, it's like a little pixie dust has to drop over the whole thing, I think. Well, I don't disagree. You would know much more than I do. But so in writing a novel, you're the only person, you and your editor together, let's say, that make it happen. So maybe that is the control thing. In a way, yeah. I mean, there is the insertion of the reader. For every reader, they're having a different experience when they're picturing a character, when they're, when they're, if they're distracted, if they're texting the whole time, it's it's a different experience than if they read it straight through. If they're falling asleep, if if they have an an abhorrence of a certain type of character, or a, you know, just or a name. You know, we had that discussion the other night. I love that names have freights. You never. I mean, mine is Bruce. I just can't deal with Bruce. Um, <laughs> and I don't know why. You know, I mean, I can't possibly explain it to you. But you know, we've we've had interesting discussions with writers about how do they pick names for their characters. You know, and we all have a different emotional reactions, probably based on people we know. Although I can't actually remember I ever knew anybody named Bruce, so I don't know why that's it. But well, in my first novel, Finding Mrs. Ford, my main character is Susan, because I think Susan is the same name as Deborah, and I'm looking at a Sue here, <laughs> because I'm of the generation of Debbies and Susies. Everybody was one or the other, yeah. so it's sort of an alter ego name, and for me, it it sort of telegraphs. Or Linda Alonso. I have a 40-year-old Linda in this book, and I make a point that she's the only Linda of her generation, because she's born in 1980. And Linda was gone by then as a name. So that's true. There are definitely fans for names. I know. I mean, maybe Justin, you know, is a big name for people who were young when Justin Bieber came along or whatever. Who knows? You know how... And I named a character, and I have to say it this way, Orlando Montague. And I want people to think of it that way. I want people to scratch their heads and say, oh, come on. (laughs) There's a reason I named him Orlando Montague. I love names. Yeah, but they're really important. One of the things you learn if you edit books is to remind writers that you can't have similar names in a book or the reader gets completely confused. So if you already have a James, you don't want to have a Jim. It's even dangerous to have a John. You know, um, it, it is, I mean, in other words, there's, there are emotional connotations to names, but it's also the reader has to keep track of who the characters are and, you know, what their personalities are. And if you give them names that are too similar, it all goes to hell. That's true. And one of the things I do before a final, final edit of a book is I read the entire book aloud, which I think is a phenomenal exercise for that reason. Because if you have a James and a John, it will reveal itself that this sounds a little funny. Or if you tend to use the word funny over and over, you catch yourself in that. And you also catch rhythm and cadence. And there is, even forgetting audiobooks, but that is an important thing. But even when we're reading a book, the rhythm of a language and the cadence is important because I think, well, you're a speed reader, which is a little different. But if you're not a speed reader, reading is a bit of an auditory skill. I mean, we're not all sitting there moving our mouths, but we are kind of hearing a rhythm. And if you read it aloud, you can tell if it works or if it doesn't work. You can catch your clunkers. I had an interesting discussion years ago with David Morrell, who wrote First Blood, which turned into Rambo. And unfortunately, um, when he sold Rambo, nobody 
he wasn't clear about what he was actually giving up. So, in point of fact, he gave up everything except the right to the T-shirts and the stick figures. But, you know, it's another sad story. But anyway, then the movie company owns the names involved in it. So David and I were sitting in his office in Santa Fe, and he was working on a book, and he said to me, you know, I was moving along, and it was all going well, and then I suddenly realized that my my main character, they were going to, they were going to contest it, because it's the name of a character that was in Rambo, and the movie company was not going to allow him to use that. And he said, I was actually not making much progress with this book. It wasn't going well. When I had this revelation, he said, I realized I had to change the name of the character. So now you can do global, you know, search and replace. So it's not all that hard. And he said, the minute I changed the name of the character, the book came to life for me, and I was able to write the book. And he said, so a tip I have for writers is if it's not working, he said, just rename, you know, somebody. I love that. Isn't that an interesting I thing? I really it like just, that. I, I, I it remember makes sense. that. Yeah. And well, in in this book, of course, well, I don't know if any of you have read it. You do not know the name of the writer for a very long while, and that's a point. Ooh. And I'm always surprised when someone reviews it and puts in the name of the writer. I'm thinking, oh, could you just have held that back a little? Yeah, yeah. So why why did you want to do that? Well, I can't say why. If oh, I say okay. Why, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I can't right. say why, but it was an important. It was done for a reason. It's intentional. I thought it was. So why did you pick Argentina? I mean, that's an interesting choice, too. They could have gone anywhere. Why did they go to Argentina? So one of my best friends is half Argentine, and about 10 years ago, we, we made a trip to Buenos Aires, and then her family has a ranch in Patagonia, which is a very dry, desolate place. And I was enchanted with the country, but I was shocked and completely obsessed with the detention center where the people who were disappeared, which is a verb in this case, there, you know, there was a, a military government in the late 70s and early 80s who rounded up citizens, whether they were leftists or students or union members, and they would hood these people and drive them, drive them, drive them, what seemed like very long distances. But the chilling thing is you see this detention center, and it's right in the middle of Buenos Aires. And that just made my blood run cold that these people had been taken from their families and in a weird way they were still kind of next door to home. And terrible things happened in these detention centers and to these people. So it stayed in my mind as, because I'm a woman of a certain age, so if you wait a while to really get going writing, you have a lot of things in your brain that you've accumulated. And it just sort of made its way into Miguel's backstory and in in you know again if you keep the theme of generational trauma in mind it it doesn't just apply to the writer no i know that but i mean you could have made him asian american you could have made him you know there are all kinds of things you, you could have done so i wondered why you had chosen to make him hispanic and and argentine well that so in finding mrs ford the fellow who is kind of the impetus of the plot, who kicks it off, is an Iraqi Chaldean. And the Chaldeans are Catholics from the north of Iraq. Right. And it begins when an Iraqi Chaldean man comes to see a woman in, in her beautiful seaside home. And you start to peel the onion of what one has to do with the other. And so I picked that particular exotic character for a reason, because I'm from Detroit. And there are a lot of Iraqi Chaldeans in Detroit. And the storyline goes back to Detroit. And I, I love that research part. 
in my second novel, uh, my character Orlando Montague is uh, Ang- <laughs> Orlando, Orlando Montague is Anglo Chinese, and I had a ball writing him because there was a guy I knew at one point who was Anglo Chinese, and I was so intrigued by him. And we could get into the topic of cultural appropriation and can you write characters who are not your gender and your ethnic profile? And I, I wouldn't be so bold as to tackle the primary character, but I, I think nobody wants to read a book with 15 middle-aged white women just <laughs> running around. So you've got to have other people, and how do you do it? Um, for me, I've made them you know, not the primary characters, and then I've researched the heck out of it. And then using the acting, I've just tried to make them as real as I think human beings are. I mean, I do think there's more that unites us than separates us. So my husband, who's a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, all-American guy, he must wonder why I'm writing all these exotic men. <laughs> hmm. Well, let's not probe that too deeply. No. Did you, this, this leaves me, I don't know if you all know that um, as a consequence of a furor in publishing three or four years ago that was seriously ugly, publishers have now hired what they call sensitivity readers. I am so offended by that, I can hardly stand it, because the, the whole point of fiction, I think, is for people to be able to, you know, make things up. I don't think you have, I, I understand there's a yeah. value to it, but it's not okay with me. Did you have a sensitivity reader? No, I did not. Uh, and I've thought long and hard about that because I have, in three books, had male characters who are not my ethnicity. But also, I'm not male. Exactly. So how do you write that? I mean, I think about Spike Lee, and I love his movies, but he has female characters. So how does he do that? I mean, there's got to be something of a leap. I think it's once you start straightjacketing people's imaginations that things become... Static, boring, stagnant. I'm not okay with that. Well, and it's all interpretation. Think about Shakespeare. I'm talking about like book to film. With Shakespeare, it you've got to keep redoing it, and you can do it in whatever way you want. Look at Bridgerton. They're, they're making the miniseries in a way that it wasn't necessarily written, and I'm delighted by that. Why not make it multiracial? Why not? play with gender. Why not? I mean, you can't, what's the point of doing Romeo and Juliet the same way every year for hundreds and hundreds of years? Do it, you know, do it in a garage, do it however you want to do it. So I, I think, yes, you can't restrain creativity. I think it's Definitely a, it's not. a slippery slope. It is. So, um, I'm trying to think. What what was it we talked? We've been out for wine, so I'm having a little trouble. Um, what was it we also agreed to discuss? We talked about generational trauma. We talked about the fact that the book is based or was inspired by, you know, a personal story. But your mother was exposed to all that. And then we talked about different narrative voices, which we've We we've talked about... Body Heat, the film, the the noir film that was set in Lantana, ah, Florida. Let's talk about noir, right? Yeah, that let's was talk it. about noir. Okay. So I love the genre of noir. It, w- it was, uh, you know, a film jo- genre that was very prominent in the 1940s, black and white films. Uh, and in noir, the woman is generally not to be trusted. You best keep an eye on her and pay very close attention to what she says because it might not be truthful. So with Linda, the wife's storyline, I, I was playing with noir themes, and um, I got a great note from an editor 
on Ruby Falls, my second book, okay. which because I like to write a plot twist and we can talk about the difference between a twist and a reveal. She said, I want you to rewatch the movie The Sixth Sense. And, what, and when it comes to that moment, when you realize this is not at all what I thought was going on, what they do in the movie is they do a very quick series of visual flashbacks where you very rapid fire look again at what you've already seen and you recharacterize it now for a new time. She, the way she put it, she said, people do not want Agatha Christie anymore. They don't want to be in this locked room mystery where one of us ends up dead, one of us did it, and at a certain point, the detective walks in and said, it was the dog. Um, they, oh, I'm sorry. In, in Look at her head come up. <laughs> doggy. Hello. Hello. In other words, they don't want it to happen in such a way where it gets to that point and they feel like, Oh, well, darn, I never could have figured that out. Yeah. I needed the detective to tell me. She said, what you want to do is leave a breadcrumb trail. Your reader might not necessarily figure it out, and generally they won't, but when the twist comes, you want them to be able in their own minds to say, oh, I should have seen it here, 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 here. Yeah. So I'm very careful to drop that, that trail uh, that's not as recognizable on first read. So with noir, I mean, being in Florida in this pandemic lockdown, which was the twilight zone, as everywhere was the twilight zone, and I would go ride my bike at the end of the day up and down the island of Palm Beach, and I came to Reef Road, and I thought, that's my place name, because it's slightly ominous. You know, it's not one of those sweet street names like dolphin or hibiscus. Mm. But I wanted that weird kind of noir feeling. And again, I rewatched Body Heat, that film with Kathleen Turner and William Hurt, which is right down the road from where I was writing. And they're all kind of hot, sweaty, and bad, just bad. <laughs> <laughs> which I like that. So, Patrick, you're the noirist in this room. That's right. You came right out. Mm. So, Body Heat, do you like that movie? It's very good. Well, so, with Reef Road, that's what I was going for. With the title, which is a real street name, what it conjured up was something like Cape Fear, a real place name, but it conjures danger, uh, peril. Exactly. Wasn't he great in that movie? Yes. One of the great yeah. moments in my book-selling life in our original bookstore over on Main Street when I was like one of two employees or something. Well, anything was only me for a while. Anyway, it was the end of a day on the Saturday, and I was head down looking at the cash box and thinking about cashing out or whatever it is, and somebody came up to the counter and put down a book, and then he opened his mouth and started talking, and I thought, it's just, it can't be. But I looked up, and in fact, it was Robert Mitchum, because he lived here, or he was here part of the time, you know? And I mean, I was just, and then actually the best one, we did an event at the, it was a long time ago, it was 1999, and there was something called the American Achievement Academy, we were asked to be the bookseller, and it had like, I mean, it was like superstar lineup, they had 18 Nobel Prize winners and famous artists and all the rest of it, and do you remember, I think her name was Noelle, the, the teenager, 
So she was there helping us and do cash point at one point. And I was over sitting on the floor with Sue Grafton signing 400 copies of A.S. for Alibi to give to all the kids that were present. And all of a sudden, I heard the scream. And I looked over, and money was raining up into the air. It was all the rest of it. And, and this little girl's name I can't remember had looked up at the voice of James Earl Jones. <laughs> and she was like, wow. were you there for that? I mean, it was the most wonderful thing. Yeah, I mean, it was like, there he was, Darth Vader, you know, right in front of her buying a book. It was so great. That's wonderful. It was, yeah. right. But anyway, what were we talking about? I got distracted. Oh, we were talking about Cape, Cape Fear, Fear, and I went so, off on Robert Mitchum. Well, Sorry. the Reef Roads, and we talked a bit about point of view. So there is a prologue to this book, and there are great conversations about to prologue or not to prologue. I love a prologue, if you think of another movie res reference, the beginning of Citizen Kane, he dies at the beginning and the thing falls and he says, Rosebud, and it just kind of sets the tone for where you're going. So there's a prologue with two different characters mm -hmm. who are never again seen in the book and it's two surfer boys. And to me, it completely sets where you are. It's May of the pandemic lockdown. It's blisteringly hot. They sneak out in the middle of the day. Uh, you see them right away. They're crossing. Do not enter tape to go to the beach. So you know that something's going on. I mean, why can't they go to the beach? They're going to surf. And as they're walking across the sand, there are seagulls hovering around something, which turns out to be a human hand. And I loved practicing my surfer lingo and making sure I got surfer consultation. And I got to write, one brother says to the other about the hand, dude, do you think it's real? And the other brother says, the seagulls do. <laughs> so is dude the obligatory form of address for surfer boys? Well, there's dude, and then I researched bro versus bra. Some surfers say bro, some say bra. Uh, my son-in-law surfs, but his brother is really a surfer. Uh, in California, and I, idiotically, for any surfers out there, I had them carrying their surfboards up on their shoulders, and they were like, no way. They carry their surfboards under their arms, so I learned that, and because you, you have to, I, so I didn't have a sensitivity reader, but I had a surfer <laughs> reader. <laughs> Alternatively. Well, if you carry it too far, if you were a surfer, you couldn't have written about a surfer, so I'm going to give up on that. But back to noir. What, why did you decide that noir was going to be important in the book? Did you want it to go darker? Did you want to emphasize the generational trauma by introducing, you know, these the elements that characterize noir? Absolutely. It, it is a dark book, but it has humor. I think there's a thriller can always be made better by funny lines. But uh, yes, there, there's a darkness to the book. I think I set the tone with the hand at the beginning. And that so there's a phrase that I absolutely adore that I have heard attributed to Carl Hyacin as having said about Florida. And I've also heard it attributed to Somerset Mom as having said about the French Riviera in the 1920s a sunny place for shady people. So that's, that says it all. That is the Florida I wanted to convey. I love what Carl Hyacin does uh, in, in portraying Florida. I, I think we all love the seedy underbelly of a place. When I was an actress living in Hollywood, I mean, I read Hollywood Babylon, and I had some weird... It was almost like a pamphlet called Haunted Hollywood. And my girlfriend and I drove, you know, to 
you guys won't even know the names of these silent film stars, like where Ramon Navarro died or mm, where this happened or that happened. And so the contrast between the surface and what's underneath, it goes back to that idea of an identity thriller. So when I was an actress, I did the miniseries about Ted Bundy with Mark Harmon. And I just had the opportunity to go on CNN with this book because of the true crime angle. And uh, the people at CNN said, get us some clips from that Bundy thing you did. <clears throat> so I'm scrambling to figure out how do you get clips because I'm, <laughs> I've been around a long time. How do you get clips from a miniseries made in the 80s? So I'm online at night and I find something called, I don't know, Marcy's Movies where Marcy has uploaded onto YouTube from her VHS this grainy footage. So I watched the entire thing, and it actually holds up. It, CNN never used it. but So, all right, playing the woman who married Bundy. What was up with her? What did I come up with as an actress? What was she thinking? Famous question. And the only thing I could come up with her is she simply didn't believe it. She believed the surface of what he presented and took it at face value. There are many examples of serial killers who had family lives, whose Mm -hmm. wives and children had no no clue. You know, I mean, he was by all accounts handsome, charming, Mm -hmm. the whole bit. I don't know that it was, you'd really have to go deep to find a psychopath because they're very good at concealing it. Well, and the Golden State Killer, when they picked him up at the end, he had his granddaughter over, and he was making a roast beef. Yeah. And they, you know... Well, the, the guy the in Kansas that, you know, stopped, which apparently serial killers rarely do, but he took like a 20-year break and then, you know, got back at it. So, I mean, you know, there's no, there's no absolutes for serial killers. They come in various forms. Um, you know. That's right. And hence, I haven't written about a serial killer yet. But that I have that fascination, again, with identity. You know, what do the macrobiotics say? The bigger the front, the bigger the back. <laughs> uh, I think that's what most thriller writers are intrigued by. What's really going on here? Right. Well, anybody have questions that they would like to ask? We've digressed all over the place, so it's now your turn. <laughs> Thank you. And one of the things that was really fun with writing the writer was allowing her to just come out with her research on murder statistics or how often women get murdered, women and girls. She has a whole, you know, digression on femicide or uh, a murder in Palm Beach that had something to do with this house that is known as the ham and cheese house. So it was fun to write about because of that. There's, um, in Florida, they use this coral called coquina stone, and the ham and cheese house is thus named because it has white coral keystone and red brick in alternating layers. So it, it, that was a lot of fun, getting to go in all those directions. this book anywhere else? I mean, if you hadn't been locked down in Palm Beach, for example, what if you'd been locked down in like Cincinnati? Would this be a completely different book? I think so. I think there, so my second book, Ruby Falls, is, it takes off from Rebecca 
And it's an homage to Rebecca, but it goes to a very different place. And I ended up setting it in Hollywood. And I think the reason I set it in Hollywood is when my youngest daughter moved to California. And I hadn't been there for many years. And I went back to L.A. And for me, it felt like a haunted place. I had had several friends who had died in the years since I'd been there. And everywhere I went, I would would have this flood of memories. I think if you live in one place for a long time, if you pass the grocery store where, you know, something terrible happened to you, it doesn't strike you as a as a pang in the heart every time because you've seen it 300 times. But if you return to a place where you have a history and memories, good and bad, it, it's an overwhelming onslaught. The other reason I said that in Hollywood is I think the whole world knows Hollywood. We've had more than 100 years of American movies. You know what the gates to the Paramount lot look like. You know those twisting streets in the Hollywood Hills and those lampposts with that acorn glass globe and what it sounds like for heels to click down that that street. And so for that book, which is more gothic and has a, an eerier feeling, that place was right. Mm. So I think place is really important. Finding Mrs. Ford, Watch Hill, Rhode Island, which is a absolutely sparkling summer community in New England with, you know, the big shingle cottages, contrasting with Detroit in the 70s, which was pretty down in the mouth. I know I'm from there. So, and there was a reason I picked those places. I, I think place is as important as character. Well, I was really looking to place as inspiration. I mean, I agree with you that place is actually, I think place is a character. I love, you know, landscape and books to me is really important. Um, you know, Tony Hillerman's books, for example, you know, the whole, the whole Navajo Nation and all was a major character, just like real people. But what I, what I guess I was saying is if you hadn't ended up in Palm Beach, you might have written a completely different book. I think you're right. I think it would have had a different tone and a different feeling and maybe a different outcome entirely. Mm. Yeah, I think that's an interesting idea. You know, it's a really interesting idea, too, that the book didn't necessarily have to end the way it did. You know, you guys are reading the finished book, but along the way, it could have been it could have been other books. You know, the final form of it is not maybe you know, wasn't necessarily the way it started. Although That's maybe right. with you it is. Maybe no, you, no, 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 no. It wasn't. No, it changed. But Alice McDermott, uh, she has a new book out called What About the Baby? About writing. And in it, she talks about nonfiction versus fiction. And she said, in nonfiction, you must include everything. That is the effort to put it all in. Whereas in fiction, because the possibilities are, are completely limitless, they're, they're infinite, the Effort has to be to leave things out, to put a wall around it, to confine it. And for me, the pandemic setting, I chose the pandemic setting. I was writing it in the pandemic setting. I wanted to use it. I liked sort of the day and date feeling of making little notations of what was going on. But I also thought it was a very good set of constraints that served a thriller well. It was like wartime. You know... There are certain things, like when Linda's husband disappears and she can't follow. I don't know how you would achieve that in a non-pandemic setting. A woman named Catherine Ryan Howard wrote an absolutely fabulous pandemic book called 52 Days. I think that's the title of it. It could only happen if you were locked down in a Dublin apartment for 52 days. I mean, there's no other way that this story... Let me ask you finally, because I meant to ask you, you brought it up before, what is the difference in your mind between a twist and a reveal? 
So a reveal uh, is an, sort of an explanation of what is going on that you already know is going on. Someone was murdered, you find out who did, who did it. So it's the revelation. A twist is coming to a point where the, the, what you're reading tips on its axis. You realize that the story is different from what you thought it was, or a character is utterly different from what you thought it was. And I think it requires, like I said, the breadcrumb trail. You have to, you have, to have dropped those Okay, so we should say the murder, I mean, sorry, the, the movie, the Hitchcock movie Vertigo is a good example of, a, of that. Perfect. Because what you Perfect. think, yep, I think so too. That is a twist. Whereas, right. uh, sorry? oh, I don't know that. Oh, right. That's the a Jody twist. Call? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, what does gaslighting mean then? What's the difference with all this and gaslighting? So gas- I'm trying to keep up with modern terms because I'm just so just. No, I think <laughs> gaslighting is our generation. There, w- there was uh, a movie called Gaslight with uh, was Ingrid it Char- Bergman Ingrid Bergman? And was it Charles, Charles Boyer. Boyer? It was another Hitchcock movie. That's exactly right. And the husband. Every time the husband leaves the house, weird things happen. The lights flicker, right. there's noises, and he is purposely trying to make her believe that her sanity is, is slipping yeah, away right. from her. That's the that's what gaslighting means to us. But I'm not um, sure that's what it means to younger people. Isn't that interesting how that I think it's a changes. social media thing that gaslighting has to do with Come on, Patrick, you're my what interpreter. Does it mean? Ghosting. That's ghosting. ghosting. (laughs) They're perfectly good words that suddenly take out a completely different meaning. It's like you have to relearn your vocabulary. Seriously, do you know what gaslighting is? You you do, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which is actually a really interesting thing. The the gaslighting as a term. Mm Mm-hmm. And... Well, that's what gaslighting is. By, by manipulation, right. By, by certain networks and other things that are... Yeah. Uh, oh, one side or the other. And... Uh, <laughs> one of the things the writer has a little uh, uh, rabbit hole she goes down is the difference between a red herring and a MacGuffin, which I had fun writing about because it was Hitchcock who, who really talked about what a MacGuffin is. I love it. John John Dunning, one of the, actually remains to this day our very best paperback bestseller. We sold thousands of copies on it on a money-back guarantee. Remember, Patrick, we put it on the sales counter? And it has a genuine MacGuffin in it. I mean, a real one, and I had to look it up to make sure I really understood what was going on. But basically, MacGuffin is that thing that's always there in the story, but you just don't see it. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Right. Yeah. No, it really is. I mean, it's it's there. Yeah, it's right there. But um, you know, so they're they're wonderful literary devices. You know that. they're fun to master, and they're fun as a reader when you recognize them, you know, as you're reading the book. One of the reasons, whoops, we had a book die right there. <laughs> that book is right. talking no. to us. A suicidal book. 
Uh, one of the things we found so interesting in the pandemic over since like 2020 is the enormous turnover in classics. We sell, it's, it's our fastest turning category very often in the store. People had actually time to read War and Peace or, you know, um, but but what I liked about it is that there are so many classic forms, particularly of crime fiction, and many people don't know them because, you know, younger readers don't, in fact, read Agatha Christie or something. But by reading the classics, you get to go back to the roots of it, and then you can see what contemporary writers are doing or playing with those forms, you know, like Rebecca. Like, you Absolutely. know, it's a great example because it is a classic gothic. Well, it's like uh, Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 Hours. You know, he, as, as he said, it, you really have to put 10,000 hours into something to have that facility and that ease to kind of do it in a, a comfortable way. And I think it's true about reading. The more you read and going back and reading the more classic forms, uh, it, it does make you a more easeful writer you can play. Well, no, it makes you a more useful writer, but I think it makes more appreciative readers because you can see that, you know, this is a new version of of a classic form that people have done. So any other questions before we wind this up? My process. Okay. So because I'm a woman of a certain age, as I said earlier, I was for a long time a non-serious writer, so I didn't really put the time in in a committed way. And for me, it was in my mid-50s at this moment of the empty nest where I thought, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it. So I started in a few ways. One thing I did at the beginning, and I, I actually still do it, is I block out time periods on my phone or my computer. I mean, obviously, it translates to both. And I'm very obedient to those devices. So when I've blocked out time, I follow it. I like no fewer than three hours, maybe up to six hours, because I find I'm not that kind of 10-minute writer or fit it into 30 minutes. I, I kind of have to sit and get in the headspace. So those are a couple of techniques. I don't have to write at the same time every day, but I do have to write in the daytime. I'm not a, a night writer. I'm just, my head is gone by then. Um, so if I get my three to six hours in the daytime. Some other parts of my process, I told you about printing out the calendars, doing the kind of what-if notes that I do. Um, I write on the computer, but I do like for editing, I like to print it out and kind of sprawl out with my feet up and handwrite notes all over the page before I go back to the computer. I'm also a big believer in time. Uh, as a gift to your brain to allow your brain to kind of regenerate and give you ideas. With Finding Mrs. Ford, about a year after I wrote a very particular phrasing, I woke up in the middle of the night and I was not thinking about that phrasing. And I thought, oh, if I use that phrase, it will absolutely blow an entire plot point. And it was a phrase that didn't have to do with the plot point, and I can't explain why, and I was able to fix that. And that's something I think that just comes with stepping away and taking time. You know, people talk about walking, sleeping, taking a shower where ideas come. So, I mean, those are some hints into my process. I also write uh, the book as you read it with a dual narrative. I don't write all one narrative and all the other because the last voice informs the next next voice. And I like cliffhangers at the end of chapters. Mm -hmm. And that helps me. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the writer who is writing is a tired writer? 
I think so, yeah. Um, I have a home office that I don't write in. We have this room at the other end of the house, which is a conservatory that looks out in the water, and I like to write down there. I feel like I'm far away from any of the noise of the house or phone ringing. Uh, because it's a glass room, I, I don't have walls to put things up on the wall, but I fell in love with those metal rolling trolleys, so I stacked pa papers. I write at a big round table. I'm a paper person. I like seeing things on paper, like those calendars, and that all helps me. But yeah, it is different in, in different places. I need a quiet room I bet everywhere. The paper reflects our age. I mean, I'm older probably. than you are, but I think you no, know. No, I think probably, but I don't uh, don't know how you keep timelines together, because um, your computer you have to open things to see them. What this allows you to do is just scan your eye over it and see it. It's just a yeah, different. I've run into younger writers who actually write on their phones. I just can hardly believe that. I can't even type on my oh phone. My I'm always getting garbled messages. I just put up an Instagram post that has this garbled stuff in the middle because I was not paying attention. I posted it. I can't believe I... that. I would have thumb arthritis or something. Well, I'm just saying. Yeah, you know, incredible. I know it is, but you know, <gasps> we we are, you know. I, th I think it's a generational, talk about generational Probably. trauma. There it's you go. I'm that. traumatized now. <laughs> <laughs> right. Anyone else? Patrick, were there? Oh, sorry. There you are. Um, I'm on, I think I got to chapter 24 today. I stopped at 18 or 19 yesterday. Anyway, I wanted to talk to you about something I came across in here, and I kind of had to laugh because it, one thing I like about books is I kind of put myself into the story. So I have, I think I have to kind of chuckle where you said to me, like, like amateur detectives or amateur... Um, Citizen detectives, yeah. Oh, I just can't. It's just like boxing, basically. <laughs> I'm like putting myself in here. And of course, you know, saying back in the 40s where they aren't as sedate as we are today or things like that. And you've waited, you know, how many decades for someone to go back and then you've got this cold case type type thing. Um, I was wondering how how did you how did you actually figure out how to write that into the story? Because did it really really appear like they just boxed the whole thing? It did. In the real case, uh, there are a lot of newspaper articles where uh, the chief of police is interviewed and he's disparaging these people who were running around, and he called them a bunch of. Uh, Keystone Cops and Amateur Dick Tracys is what he called them. Uh, there, there were, and I put it in the book, you can't make this up. There was a sweater girl, which is, for the younger people in the room, it was a very shapely young woman who wore tight sweaters, running around with a gun holstered, and she's assisting some guy. There were uh, these people who kept grabbing the brother. They kept going back to the brother and hauling him into the police. The police kept sending him away. It was all such a mess. It was a terrible mess. And I refer to a book by a different name. There's this teeny little Pulp Fiction book that I got with the pages are disintegrating called Terror in the Streets. And they refer to this real case. And it's really about the lawlessness of American cities where you know, young women are, are being murdered right, left, and center. So all of that 
I mean, I fictionalize it, but it's very thinly, thinly fictionalized. Well, I I do like physical books. Like if I'm traveling to India, I'll take a, an e-reader because you know the the, sure. the bag. But I I find, and again, it's maybe a reflection of my age. I can find something easier in a paper copy of a book than on an e-reader. But like my son-in-law makes notes everywhere. He reads only nonfiction, and he feels he can find something. Uh, more easily on an e-reader. But because I do this summer series at the Ocean House Hotel in Rhode Island where I do conversations with authors, so I read a lot and I'm not a speed reader. Uh, I drive a lot too. So I have the real book, but in the car, I am a lover of audiobooks. And I like going back and forth. But I don't do an audio book in bed at night. I've, I tried that. And you fall asleep, and you're like, wait, where the heck am I? I I've missed the whole thing. I haven't thought about that. It, it's interesting, very interesting. You know, we people read differently. You take in information differently. You read differently. I mean, I can't. I can't read digitally at all. I can't remember anything I read. I can't find anything in the book. But I have, you know, I'm not retraining myself. I'm not going to bother at this point. So too bad. Right. Um, anybody else? Patrick, are there any online questions? Talk right to the camera. Hello, Mark. I've published three books, and my path to publication was the following. I started the first book in uh, 2014. I had a draft in a year. Uh, I worked with a freelance editor. I had an agent a year after that, and then it. we sold it a year after that, and then there was a year of all of the pre-publication. So that was the longest process. And I ended up going with a smaller publishing house that's distributed by Simon and Schuster. And I don't think my agent would have wanted to do that. I think she would have wanted to maybe put that book aside and wait a little longer. But at the agent stage, I was of life, I was kind of excited to get going. So Oh, what would they say instead of dude? Oh, well, mate. So, you know, there are people who translate English to English for books that, you know, from British English to American English to Australian English. So those would be the things like from fringe to bangs and all that stuff that they would have a go at. 
Mate, mate sounds about right. Mate, yeah. yeah that would be, um, and then, you know, in Britain, they re tend to refer to the lads rather than the guys, for example. You know, you kind of get used right. to it if you read a lot of that. Well, I want to thank you all for your attention. I know that it's hard to sit in these chairs for more than an hour, and we've kept you for longer than that. So um, let's give our author a warm round of applause. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.